Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey, and with Sam, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, with Sam, I'm very glad to see you. This is an exciting day for our church for lots of reasons, um, a big part of which is we're going to baptize here after the service. But first, you've got to listen to a sermon. So um, if, you have, if you brought along a Bible, find Revelation chapter 21. And while you're turn, turning there, I want to talk for a moment about science, specifically cosmology. Not to be confused with the science of cosmetology. That's slightly different. One, obviously, I've mastered. And the... Uh, no... Cosmology is the scientific study of the origin and the evolution of the universe. And I've talked about this before, but it's really good for us to remember this. Um, This amazing part of science, cosmology, it helps us to see with a fairly high degree of certainty that life in our universe can't go on forever. It, it, It just physically cannot last forever. For example, we know that the sun shines through the effects of its internal nuclear reactor converting hydrogen into, any scientist? Helium. There were some in the other. This group was science in the, in the other service. This group was artsy. So um, anyway. Now, we know that in about 5 billion years, all the core hydrogen of the sun will be exhausted. And when that happens, the sun will swell up and become a red giant. And when that happens, you're doomed. If you're still around, some of you might be. When the sun becomes a red giant, it will burn up any life that exists on earth. We, we have enough scientific knowledge about the way stars evolve to make this prediction absolutely reliable. Now, you could come at this universe from another angle through the long-term history of the universe that it's controlled by the competing effects of expansion and gravity. Expansion, the explosive consequence of the Big Bang. Um, Bang, this whole thing started and it started moving out. Science shows us that. We know that that's what's happening. And, And as a result of that, Things are moving away. But then you've got this force called gravity, which does the opposite. It pulls all things together. And these are contrasting competing forces. And science tells us that they're fairly evenly balanced. And as a result, we don't know for certain which is going to win out. Is the universe going to expand away into oblivion? Or is it going to um, go the opposite direction? So for example... If expansion wins out, if it's the more powerful force, which is the possibility currently favored by most cosmologists, I'm not sure what the cosmetologists favor, but this is the cosmologist's favorite. Cosmic history will continue forever in a world steadily growing colder and more dilute, and eventually everything will decay into low-grade radiation. Now, If gravity wins out, so if expansion and then suddenly gravity becomes a more powerful force, pulls everything back in, then the present expansion will one day be halted and reversed. And what began with a big bang will end in a big crunch. And the universe will explode into a cosmic melting pot. 
Now, the timescales for these processes are actually longer than you have to personally worry about. They're immensely long, spanning many tens of billions of years. But one or another of them, it's where this universe is headed. The universe will either end in the whimper of cold decay or the bang of fiery collapse. Science clearly shows that we live in a finely tuned, fruitful universe that is facing ultimate futility. However, last week, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and last week we got to the end of chapter 20, in the first few verses of chapter 21, and we see there that God is going to interrupt the, the natural development of the universe, and he's going to heal it. He's not going to let that happen. He's going to interrupt the natural development of the universe, and he's going to take away the death and the decay. He's going to solve this problem. Death and decay, expansion or gravitational contraction will not have the last word. God is going to heal the whole universe, not just you. He's going to heal humans from their bondage to sin and death and decay and all the bad stuff. He's also going to heal relationships from death and politics and psych your mind and your emotions. And not only all of you and all of that, but the whole universe, God holds it and he's going to heal it. That's clearly the story the Bible tells. And, and last week we looked at one of the most beautiful tellings of that story. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 8. And this week we pick up in verse 9. And, and the story Revelation tells shifts its focus. Here's the deal. What we looked at last week, the end of Revelation 20 and the beginning of chapter 21, are about some point that could very likely be tens of hundreds of thousands of years from now. When God heals all things. We, we know that the universe can sustain itself for tens of billions of years. And God might wait that long. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, God made a promise to his people. He promised that he would be faithful to those who are loyal to him. He would be faithful to their children for thousands of generations. The best we can figure a generation is about 30 years. From the time he made that promise has been somewhere between 100 and 130 generations. And he said, I'm going to do it for thousands of generations. So clearly, even, even if he's just saying a very long time, I mean, a thousand generations is 30,000 years. We're 3,500 years into that. And he said thousands of generations. Now, was he being literal? I don't think so. But he was saying a very, 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 very long time. There's a good chance that this thing God promised he's going to do, the making of all things new, could be very far in the distant future. But here's the catch. Between the time this book was written, Revelation, and the time when God heals everything and rescues this universe and rescues your soul, 
and heals all things. Between the time this book was written and then is a, is a time period that this book talks about in, in our passage this morning. So Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9 and going through to chapter 22, verse 5. This is a vision of life now. In between, technically, the fall of Jerusalem and the healing of all things. And it's a vision of the church in the midst of that time span. And and notice how it images the church. Look in verse 16. Revelation chapter 21, verse 16. It, It gives the picture of a church as the city. The church is a city. It lies four square, its length the same as its width. It's measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits. Now, this is massive. I mean, to give you a comparison, the size of this city, this church, that's given the image of a city, the size of this church is more than big enough to cover half the United States and to rise to the height of 260 Mount Everest stacked on top of each other. Now, this is clearly symbolic. It's, and, and remember, when you're reading Revelation, don't confuse the symbol with the reality. And just because it's a symbol doesn't mean what it's pointing to is not real. Right? The symbol points. It's like you saying to your dog, over there, and your dog's staring at your finger. And you're like, no, over there. And he just keeps staring at your finger. This symbol in Revelation is pointing to something. Don't just keep staring at it. What is it pointing at? It's saying that in between the fall of Jerusalem, which was AD 70, when Titus and the Roman army sacked Jerusalem, and the Lord returns, the church is going to become the dominating center of reality. This is actually an image of a giant holy of holies. Now, why why does this kind of stuff matter? Well, let's keep looking at this. Look at verse 13. Notice what it says about this church. It has this great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates have 12 angels. Now jump down to verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And okay, now look at verse 25. And its gates will never be shut. Isn't that a beautiful image of the church? Always open. In the middle of the world, but always open to the world. Never shutting its gates. Here is an image of the church where there is this commerce between the church, which is in the midst of the world, and the world. Where it's open. And it's tolerant. And it's inclusive. And it's welcoming. That's the picture of the church, but pay close attention. Verse 27. See, somebody said, pay close attention. That was their little. Look at verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah, the church in the midst of the world, is open and inclusive and welcoming, but this inclusivity is not limitless. There are boundaries. And this is necessary for the church for the same reason that it's important to have a rule of no smoking in a library or no playing loud radios in concert halls because whatever ruins the beauty and the holiness of God's new city, the church is ruled out. So on the one hand, it's fascinating. The church in the world now is a city unto herself. 
with thick walls that set a boundary between the church and the world. And and notice the church has its own foundation. And, And you know that. Those of you who are Christians and you're part of the church, you know there are these moments in life where you make a decision built on a totally different foundation than people who you know who are not a part of the church, who are not living their lives as Christians. Our feet are on a different foundation. Our decision making, our values, our our morals, our principles are built from another source. The church in the world is distinct. We're a distinct group of people. We have our own foundation. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, this city is not off on some island removed. It's smack dab in the middle of the world. Being in the world is the essence of the church. Here in this vision, notice, nations are drawn to the glory of the city, the church. Kings, it says, bring their treasures into the church. And there's this traffic into the church, and in the, which is a city, and the gates are never closed. Here we have a vision of the church in the midst of the world deeply engaged with the world. It's a vision of the world we live in with a church in the midst of it. A city among cities. The church in Harrisonburg is a city within this city. We don't live in isolation. And and for all the flaws and all the evils of Christendom, there is a fundamental Christian hope That the nations and rulers will flow into God's kingdom. The vision here is that the church exists in the world for the sake of the world. Now don't spiritualize this. Because the Bible is filled with passages that say literally. Psalm 68 29 says kings will bring gifts to God. Psalm 72 verse 10 says, The kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all the kings bow before him and the nations serve him. Psalm 102 verse 15 says, The nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all kings on the earth her glory. Psalm 148 verse 17 says, Praise Yahweh from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, kings of the earth and all peoples. Our scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Right now, That's now. That's this time period right now. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. We could go on and on. These are not just prophecies, they're promises. This is God's promise. The nations will do this. What's going to happen in the years between now and and the healing of all things is Isaiah 2. That's going to happen. We got a glimpse of it when Jesus was born. And the Magi, the kings, came. And what did they bring, King Jesus? Gifts, presents. The glory of their, of their groups. The glory of their countries. These promises are going to come true. Revelation 21, 9 through 22, 5 is a promise. This will come true. Notice verse 11. Revelation 21, 11. The, the city, the, the church, 
having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The church is filled with the glory of God. Now, that doesn't just mean the church will be wonderful to look at, though that's clearly true. It means that God's glory, God's own presence, is in the church. Notice verse 24. As a result of this, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The glory of God inspires kings and nations to bring their glory to the church. To enhance the church. And God's glory is this amazing thing. It doesn't diminish the glory of the kings and the nations and ethnic groups. It multiplies them. It's not like you coming into the orbit of a superstar who diminishes you and erases you. It's like you coming into the orbit of the wisest, kindest, gentlest person you've ever met who maximizes you. Who you in their orbit shine brighter than you ever shine. God's glory doesn't diminish the glory of kings and nations and tribes and ethnic groups. It multiplies them and more wondrous still, God permits human glory to enhance his glory. The glorious city, glorious with the light of the Lamb, is made more glorious by the glory of the kings. Before the new heavens and the new earth, nations will stream to the church to worship the Lord, to learn his ways, to finally beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. This will happen. It's a promise. God has promised that his Messiah will make lions and lambs live in peace. God will pacify the nations. God will do what he's promised. So that's what we're up to as Christians now in the world. As we wait, we trust God and we work for the fulfillment of these promises in expectation that they will happen. Your parents promise you that you can get your driver's license at a certain age. So you work to get your driver's license at that age. That's what we're doing. And it may take tens of thousands of years. A God who created this universe that's now something like 13 billion years old doesn't have a problem with long time frames. It's Americans with our instant society that does. God is up to a... If God can take millions of years to evolve a creature, God has no problem with this. Revelation 21 verse 9 through 22 verse 5 is a picture of the church. The church is the place... Get this, where all the gifts of salvation are found. Notice chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. That's a reference to the very beginning of the Bible. Everything was going along good until one day Adam and Eve snuck a snack. And when they, that was funny, didn't you? And when they did, when they had this illicit meal in, rebel, in rebellion against the high king, everything broke. And right after that, it says the world was cursed. And you know this. You've tried to say something honest and pure. And it didn't work. You've tried your hardest to do your best only to fail again. 
You know that there is a power greater than you at work in this world. You know that you can be a farmer and do everything right, plant everything right, and it doesn't rain when it should, or it rains when it shouldn't, and you lose it all. This world is under a curse, but do you know where the healing is found? It's found in the church. It's in the church where the curse is absolved and forgiven and cleansed and moved away. Anyone who wants light and guidance and bread and the best gifts that God has to offer has to come to the church. You have to find a clean robe and enter through the pearly gates past the angel guardians into the church where Jesus gives his gifts and he gives himself. But he gives his gifts in the church only to citizens of the church. There is no salvation, no wholeness, no shalom outside the church. Not only for each of us, but for nations. The church is the hope of the nations. The church is the hope of your family. The church is the hope of the world. The church is this beautiful bride pictured here. Do you realize in Genesis 1, seven times in creation, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And it's setting you up. I mean, he says it so much that you feel the setup coming. And then in chapter 2, bam, he springs the trap on you, right? Because suddenly in chapter 2, for the very first time, it says, it's not good. And you know what's not good? There is no bride. The whole story of the Bible is a story of God preparing a bride. And so we get to the last page and God offers the bride and the bride is the church and it's glorious and it's beautiful. Now you might be thinking, now I know you're not telling the truth, Aubrey, because that's not what the church looks like. Is the church really bright with the glory of God? Does she really sparkle like a bride adorned with jewels? Is she really a holy place? without anything abominable? Does she really guide the nations with her light? And do kings really bring their glory through her gates? Can you really find the fruit of the tree of life along the banks of the river? And do you really think that God is using the church to heal the nations? I mean, not only does the church seem to fall short of these points, she often seems to be precisely the opposite. The church seems far from virginal. More a purveyor of darkness than a beacon of light. Her residents sin and cover up sin. Her leaders enrich themselves on her jewels. And this business about no abomination in the church, really? What about the priest child abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church? What about the corruption of new Christian movements in Africa? What about the, the times we see the church cowardly compromising with brutish strong men? What about the many churches playing loose with, sexu- with biblical sexuality, celebrating acts quite explicitly labeled abominable by Scripture? What about when churches tolerate wealthy brutes who abuse their employees and ravage the environment? What about the complacent middle-class churches who are happy with middle-class morality and want nothing more than their religious fixed and to be left alone? What about when the poor in the church start looking to game the system? When the opportunity comes, it seems to me that the church has been as viciously bloodthirsty as any tribal nationalist. The Rwandan genocide. The church was all up in that. The most efficient genocide in the history of the world. A million people killed in less than a hundred days. 
Yeah, all that's true. But here's the catch. It's not the whole truth. It's not all of the truth. Throughout the history of the church, from the time this book was written until now, bishops and priests have served as guides to kings, teaching them humility before the high king, instructing them to rule with mercy and to pursue justice. The church has been and still is a mediator of international disputes, gathering leaves from the tree of life that Jesus gives to heal the nations. Anglicans have begun to heal the murderous divisions of the Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda. The church has, been, has instructed and encouraged nations to devote their power to plowshares rather than, than, than swords. The Mennonites have been up to something. And it's not just one long history of failure. We have to learn the whole history. The church has not always been a peaceable city or, an, or encouraged peace. The church has not always been successful, but she has had many successes. The dignity of human beings in Western civilization did not come from Roman Greek, Greece. Have you read histories of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire? They did not have a view of the sacredness and the value of individuals. That is the gift of the church to the West. Nations and kings have devoted a great deal of treasure to the church over the years. Beginning with Constantine, the mission of the church is to disciple the nations. And that mission calls nations to devote their time and their talents and their resources and their power and their wisdom to serving Christ so that the kingdom of the world can become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. And they do so when the nations devote their riches and their glory to the church. Did you know that the church today is populated by residents from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and race and color and variety of humans? Did you know that Christianity is not a white man's game? It is not colonialism. Did, did you know that Christianity did not originate in Europe? It wasn't imported from Europe to the South. Did you know that China will soon have more Christians than any country in the world? That sub-Saharan Africa is vibrantly Christian. That Latin America is aflame with Pentecostal power. Anyone who thinks that the vision in Revelation 21 and 22 is a myth needs to fly to Europe, go into a cathedral, and ask somebody, where did the cash come from for this building? Who patronized the sculptors, the painters, the carvers, and the craftsmen? If there is any prophecy in Scripture that has an empirical, testable fulfillment, it is this. The kings will bring their glory into the church. Kings have brought their treasure into the holy city, the church. And so even when the church does not live up to the vision we have here, this passage, this vision, is being fulfilled. That's the whole deal. It's a vision of, of the holy city coming from heaven, coming to earth. It's not like one fell swoop. It's, it's this massive city that covers over half the United States. In other words, the church will fill the world. You are on the winning team. Because God who made all things promised he will heal all things. And he keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. 
Revelation 21 is a picture of the church and it is a mission statement. It is a measure of faithfulness. It lays out our goals. If we radiate darkness rather than light, if we suck glory from the nations without blessing the nations, if we hoard the fruit of the tree of life and block up the flow of the spirit, then we are not being the bridal city God calls us to be. If we pull out of the world and form our own little commune, We are not being the city, in the city, God is calling us to be. We're about to baptize. Because through the middle of the city, the church flows the water. That is a river of life. And it flows to a tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Let's pray.